Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney along with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kieran Mulvaney. Uh, Eric, uh, we're going to talk about this later of course but we're about a week away from seeing Deontay Wilder in the ring again and uh, I was watching some preview videos and the shoulder programming and I was reminded if I needed to be that uh, our Deontay He's not short of a word or two about an opinion or two. <laughs> yeah, he's he's had a few things to say, and uh, yeah, let me let me uh, start right out by sort of addressing one of them, uh, but also kind of addressing something someone else said about him. Uh, let me let me okay. read a passage uh, from our friend uh, Rafe Bartholomew's speed bag column in the Athletic. Uh, he was writing about. Deontay complaining about how the Showtime broadcasters called his fights, specifically calling out Pauli Malignaggi and Steve Farhood for his 100% correct scoring in the Fury <laughs> fight. Uh, Rafe writes, I understand why Wilder might have some mild beef with Malignaggi because everyone involved in the global sport of boxing since Joe Gans fought battling Nelson has beefed with Pauli for at least a little while. But Steve Farhood? Beloved Hall of Fame editor and TV analyst Steve Farhood, if Wilder or anyone else wants to see 50 irate boxing media schlubs take up pitchforks, I recommend they visit Press Row during a big fight and speak ill of Steve Farhood. (laughs) There will be audible grumbles from the scribes and pointed words for the offender on 75 different boxing podcasts the following Monday. (laughs) You come at the Farhood, you better be damn good. Uh, So here's my question for you, Kieran. How many irate boxing media schlubs would need to band together to have the edge over Deontay Wilder? Because uh, I'm in. My pitchfork is ready. Uh, but if it's 50 on one, can we win? Or do we need 75 of us out of shape schlubs? What, what's the number? How many washed boxing writers equals one prime power-punching heavyweight? Well, I, I, don't, I don't know. But I do promise you this much. However many there are, I will be right there behind okay. them all. Right behind them. <laughs> Counting them all as they march toward their irate, self-righteous doom. And I shall eulogize every single one of them. Unless, of course, you're talking, because we've mentioned podcasts, we're talking about metaphorical verbal pitchforks. Mm, that right. is still a tough matchup against Deontay, but I think, <laughs> right. I think it's a lot more even that way. Right. Wow. So little faith in your brethren on Media Row. I mean, think, well, yes. of, think of all the big, strong, <laughs> in-shape men that, uh, that could march forward there. Or, or or could be effective uh, verbally. Yeah, I guess it's uh, oh, I guess it's pretty okay. bleak either way. Yeah, it's getting worse and worse as yeah. we talk. Never yeah. mind. Oh well. All right. Uh, we have uh, relatively few fights, pitchfork involving and otherwise, to uh, review and preview this week. We will look back on Friday's Showbox triple header from the Winner Vegas Casino in Iowa, and we will look ahead to the Deontay Wilder Luis Ortiz rematch in an actual Vegas casino in Nevada. Uh, we'll also have a fantastic interview. Uh, with trainer Stephen Breadman Edwards, uh, ranging across a variety of topics, um, from his fighter Julian J. Rock Williams to PEDs in boxing, and why Ali Foreman was the greatest win in boxing history, with what might be the greatest answer to any question we've ever posed in our podcast history. I think you'll look forward to that one. You'll enjoy it. Uh, but first, as promised, to Sloan, Iowa, where a triple header of action began with five undefeated boxers, and ended with just two. Eric. That's right. Yeah, the the six fighters began the night with just one loss between them, and that loss was on the record of Argentina's Alberto Palmetta. Uh, but as we both predicted, uh, he emerged victorious in the main event against Mexico's previously unbeaten Eric Vega. When we made our official picks for this fight on last week's podcast, we both went with a unanimous decision win for Palmetta. 
and we came within two minutes of nailing it and, and getting all three points. But in round 10, the Argentine really upped the pace uh, and output, hurt Vega, went in for the finish, unleashing a furious rally that convinced referee Mark Nelson to step in and stop the bout at 103 of the final round. Overall, I was impressed with Palmetta. He at least met my expectations, maybe exceeded them. How about you, Karen? How impressed were you with Palmetta? Yeah, I was. Actually, I, should, I meant to ask you what you thought about the stoppage. Because at first, I my initial impression was that I thought it was a bit premature, but Vega wasn't fighting back and, and Palmetta's punches were getting through. And then I realized Vega wasn't complaining even a little right. bit. So yeah. I figured, yeah, actually, Nelson probably called it right. Yeah, my, o- my only uh, reason to gripe with the stoppage was for predictive reasons that, uh, you know, and, and on, on the DraftKings thing as well, I, you know, I, I there was benefit in it uh, to me if it went the distance, but otherwise it did feel like the right time to stop it. Yeah, yeah. No, I enjoyed Palmetto's performance um, uh, and obviously the, the way that he just decided to go out there and finish it. Um, you know, uh, he struck me, I thought, he was the fighter that I saw in, in the videos, like the, you know, when we were preparing for this, he, there was nothing that he did that particularly surprised me based on the research that we've done. I don't think he's not with, even with his Olympic experience and, and his uh, amateur background, I don't feel like he's an elite fighter. Um, you know, one of the things is like the very best fighters, the ones I really love watching, they fight with a certain compactness about them, a certain centeredness to them. Mm. But, Palmetta's punches are compact and direct, but I realized like there's something about watching them that makes me feel something's a little bit off. And I realized that although his punches are compact, the rest of him isn't. Um, hmm. uh, his legs don't always seem to move in perfect symphony with his upper body the way like they're truly, truly good fighters do. But God, he looks like he must be a bugger to fight because he just he just keeps coming, doesn't he? He's just yeah. like that that right jab, right jab, left hand, right left left hand. It's just a constant, constant. Um, Uh, a stream of punches and as we talked about in the preview there's obviously something about that left hand even though it doesn't look flashy it doesn't look fast doesn't look super hard it's obviously effective um in that you know we mentioned earlier it's gotten a lot of his opponents out of there and and obviously clearly affected vagrant and hurt him badly down the stretch um yeah like i said i don't know that how far he's gonna go or how high he's gonna climb but he's an entertaining fighter to watch he clearly puts a tremendous amount of effort into every fight and he's going to get a lot more tv dates and opportunities to at the very least i think fight for ultimately for some kind of belt i think yeah i i would think so and uh, hey he uh, he just beat a guy who uh, modeled his style on ricardo lopez so well, there you uh, go. he, he uh, vega unfortunately is no ricardo lopez but you know the modeled on ricardo lopez that's a good notch on your belt i suppose yeah, there you go there you go um so two of the three fights on the card ended inside the distance the one that didn't was the co-main um in which houston's joe george scored a split decision win over another man from argentina marcus escaduro so the showtime crew not only had Escaduro comfortably ahead, but I mean, we've heard our guys sound baffled at the end when, <laughs> when, but this, even by that standard, that was it, to the extent that all the way through the main event, they were questioning their ability and what they knew about right. anything about boxing anymore. Um, they had him way ahead. Uh, Escaduro, the official George judges, one judge did see it for him, 96, 94. The others had it 97, 94 and 97, 93 for George. Uh, Eric, how did you have that fight? Did you agree with our guys? Um, and what stood out to you from that fight? So I guess to answer this, I should say up front that this was one of those fights I wasn't scoring round oh, by okay. round. Uh, and I'd hate to 
you know, assign a number to it if I didn't have that level of focus that a judge is supposed to have. Um, but, you know, I'm watching and I'm generally agreeing with Steve Farhood's scorecard. Uh, pitchfork in hand, of course, in agreement That's with right. Steve. Right. Um, and it's clear that Escudero is totally outworking George uh, sure. and, and the CompuBox stats really tell that part of the story punches landed were pretty close 177 to yeah. 161 in favor of Escudero but the punches thrown 911 to 545 um, but I'll be the first to insist you shouldn't win rounds just by being busier the punches mm-hmm. that land are the ones that really matter and the landed punches were close to even uh, I believe Steve had it 98 92 it certainly could have been closer than that. Again, I wasn't scoring it round by round, so I'm not going to sit here and call it a robbery. But it's just really surprising that the judges found that many rounds to give George when, time and again, he was on the ropes covering up and Escadero was letting his hands go. It's really hard to give the round to George in that situation unless he's doing serious damage in other parts mm-hmm. of the round, which he wasn't. Um, George is a solid fighter. Uh, he had the faster hands. He showed good skills. I didn't come out of it necessarily feeling like Escudero proved superiority, but just the way the fight and the rounds within the fight played out, it's it's hard to see how judges gave six or seven rounds to George. Just stylistically, you don't usually see the judges side with that guy who's fighting yeah. that way. And unfortunately, the controversial result obscures what should have been the story, which was that these two boxers gave the fans an excellent fight. And this was a great piece of matchmaking. Um, This and the main event, both really good job of matching fighters who are right around the same level and whose styles went together. Well, yeah, Uh, it's a little harder to applaud the matchmaking for the opening (laughs) bout. Uh, Although, you know, it looked okay on paper. We had uh, two undefeated fighters with impressive KO percentages clashing uh, and the result. Uh, shockingly, was a knockout, uh, a very quick knockout. Uh, Uruguay's Amilcar Vidal scored two knockdowns against Zac Prieto of Texas, prompting Mark Nelson to, as he did in the main event, uh, step in and halt the contest, uh, in this case just before the bell rang to end the opening round. Uh, Kieran, did uh, Nelson make the right call in this one? Uh, and and did we see enough of either man to come to any conclusions? Well, as for the main event, I think my initial impression was, again, maybe it was a tad premature um, particularly given the proximity to the end of the round. But then I saw the way that Prieto kind of like staggered into Nelson and, and, and sort of sagged on him. Mm. I'm like, oh, no, okay, no, I think he made a pretty good pretty good uh, call there. Uh, Prieto was actually pretty done. I mean, I guess you can make the case it was super near to the end of the round. He was going to get a minute to recover. But, um, yeah, I don't know. He was pretty badly hurt, I thought. Um, can we learn anything from it? You know what was funny? I, in that first round, I was making a note like, boy, both these guys – well, a little bit like Palmetto, um, I was saying, boy, both these guys look like to be a nightmare to fight for different reasons. You know, Pareto is one of those guys who's just obviously going to just try and get on your chest and, and, and just, you know, work on you really hard. And, and then Vidal, oh, like with that length and those, those reach, that reach and those angles he's able to, to, to fire and that torque he's able to get on those punches. Um, I think the main thing I got out of it is that, you know, if you're a short guy, whose job is to try to get inside and get onto somebody's chest, you're going to be really vulnerable against Vidal, hmm. who is just going to eat you up with uh, the, those kind of like uppercut hook type punches that he was able to throw. Um, he looks very nice and calm and composed, Vidal, and he's clearly a good finisher. So I don't think we knew, learned enough uh, from this fight, but I learned that I'd quite like to see him again. Yeah, de- definitely. I mean, all in all, this was a good showbox card, but... 
Prieto was the weak link, and I, and I thought that mm. coming in, in, in the DraftKings contest, I picked Vidal by early KO. Not rounds one and two, unfortunately. I, I went with the round three to four uh, range, but um, Prieto just wasn't much of a test. So I, I'm intrigued to see more of Vidal. Uh, don't think we could draw any solid conclusions from this fight, but the two minutes and 59 seconds or so that we saw, um, I thought, uh, you know, couldn't, couldn't ask for much more than that. Indeed. All right, looking ahead, and as we've already alluded to, this Saturday, November 23rd, on Fox Pay-Per-View, Deontay Wilder faces off against Luis Ortiz in heavyweight action from the MGM Grand Garden Arena in Lost Wages, Nevada. Um, It is, of course, a rematch of a fantastic fight in March 2018 when Ortiz, for a bit there, had Wilder reeling before Wilder came back to drop and stop the Cuban emigre and remain undefeated while handing Ortiz his first professional loss. So victory for Wilder clears the path for another rematch, uh, which apparently is set for February against lineal champ Tyson Fury. Um, So, Eric, you and I have touched on this before a couple of times when we've mentioned this without really getting into it in depth. But um, the obvious question kind of arises here, given that this Fury rematch is apparently basically signed, sealed and delivered, and given what a torrid time for at least a round or two Wilder had with Ortiz the first time out, why is he taking this fight? And do you suspect that somewhere in the back of his mind, he's thinking, oh, maybe I was a bit too rash going into this. Maybe I should have waited. Do you think maybe he wishes that this was the Fury rematch already? Maybe a little. Um, I feel like there was a little bit of a, a bait and switch with Fury that that it yeah. was assumed they'd both be taking semi-tough interim fights and then Fury faces two guys with no track records, Tom Schwartz and Otto Valin, while Wilder is taking on maybe the most dangerous fighter outside the top four. Um, now, of course, the Valin fight turned out to be hell for Fury, right. but on paper, he was taking soft touches, and here's Wilder taking a real risk. Um, and I guess where I go from there is the assumption that Wilder doesn't see it as such a risk. Uh, there's danger in every fight, obviously, and Ortiz can really punch, but Wilder tasted that power. He came through it. I think he sees himself as better now and Ortiz as worse now. And he has supreme confidence and wouldn't have bothered with this fight if he thought there was a real chance of it derailing the Fury rematch. Uh, look, I, I don't know what would have happened if, say, Fury Valine didn't happen. And the Fury people said, you know, a few months ago, Let's do our rematch in November. And, you know, Wilder knows that's worth a lot more money than the Ortiz rematch. Would Wilder have canceled this fight? Mm. Quite possibly. Um, but because of what happened in the Valine fight uh, with the big cut, that's that becomes moot. He has to wait until next year for Fury. Might as well fight somebody. Might as well do it against an opponent. You can sort of sell on pay-per-view. So as best I can get inside Wilder's head, uh, where, uh, by the way, it's very loud. There's a lot of shouting in here. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I don't think he's really regretting this. I think he uh, pretty close to 100% believes that, that he'll take care of business against Ortiz. Um, but just because Wilder might feel that way, it doesn't mean everyone feels that way. And presumably Luis Ortiz doesn't feel that way. Uh, as you mentioned, he had Wilder in real trouble when they first met, stunning him in the seventh round. And seemingly a punch or two away from putting him down, but he wasn't able to press the advantage and convert stunning Wilder into defeating Wilder. What does he have to do differently this time around to take the extra step and score the win? So I was wondering about this, and I I think in theory, um, where fights are, of course, are not fought, 
Um, he has to keep Deontay Wilder at, at mid-range. I, I feel like he has to jab him in the chest. And I still think, and again, in the department of things that are much easier said than done, he sort of has to make him take steps backwards. Don't give him that distance. If Wilder's got room to just wing those badass power punches, forget about it, right? It's lights out. You just mm. can't give him room to get, uh, to get that torque behind those punches. But I still think if you can force him to box... Um, and especially if you can get him on the back foot, you have a shot, especially if you're like making him use his feet a bit. Uh, but I also don't think you want to be in too close either because you're at risk of those big uppercuts that he can he can throw. The problem is to get into that mid-range, you've, you know, you've got to get through that in- incoming artillery right. the world is going to be throwing at you. So um, I also think that Ortiz needs to be busier than he normally is. He's, he's a very effective fighter, but he's often... You know, he, he's he's not a guy who necessarily throws a lot of punches. He's not a guy who warms up fast. That's first we we forget now a little bit, but the first few rounds of that first fight were a little bit dull until they until they suddenly caught light. And I don't think Ortiz can do that. I think he has to be busy. And by all accounts, he's coming into this fight looking quite a bit trimmer and leaner. Um, and perhaps that's his goal. You know, maybe he realizes that and, and that's what he's going to do. He's going to try and come out and be busier, throw more punches, be a bit more athletic, try and force him back a little bit. Um, you know, we've talked about how Wilder has improved uh, since that first fight. And I think that's the general assumption that he has. I think maybe it's a bit more obvious that it looks as if maybe Ortiz has regressed a tiny bit. But again, we'll we'll see. Um, but, you know, I mean... He still looked very, how can we put it, unconventional mm-hmm. when he was when he was flinging those punches at Ortiz. He did get largely outboxed against Tyson Fury, and then obviously, you know, Dominic Brazil didn't give him much of a test. So I think we still don't know what will happen if it is possible to push him back a little bit. Um, and Ortiz, in theory, sort of remains a very good fighter to do that. He's big and he's strong. But, yeah, I do think he just kind of needs to be busier and and just try to – you just can't get on the end of those punches. You can't give him that room. Right. Um. So you mentioned earlier that Ortiz is probably the toughest fight outside of the big four. And it's interesting. I was thinking about it how in a very short space of time, we've actually gone from a big two – at the top of the heavyweight division in the form of Wilder and Anthony Joshua. Then that became a big three when Fury returned after having been apparently retired and certainly not unwell for a couple of years. Then that became a big four this year when Andy Ruiz upset Joshua. Uh, you're the betting man here. What are the odds you would put on that expanding, for, expanding further that in a week or so we're going to actually have a big five because Ortiz has upset Wilder? Well, uh, I figure, uh, why use my odds when I can tell you the actual odds? There uh, you go. <laughs> the best price that I could find on Ortiz is plus 490 So bet $100 to win $490. So just shy of 5 to 1. Uh, the best price on Wilder is minus 550 So bet 550 to win 100 um, I'm not planning to bet it, at least not straight up. Uh, maybe I'll end up you know, liking Wilder by knockout uh, or uh, a range of rounds or the over-under on rounds or something. I haven't looked at all my options yet. But at those prices straight up on Wilder and Ortiz, it's kind of a stay away. I'd say the true odds against Ortiz winning are something like 6-1, to one, um, which shows you how far I've come on Wilder. Uh, a few years ago, right. uh, I yeah. wasn't taking him seriously at all. When a fight with Ortiz was first discussed, I considered Ortiz the clear favorite. By the time it happened, I'd swung to 
thinking Wilder was maybe a slight favorite, but it was kind of a fight that, that could go either way. And now here I am favoring Wilder over anyone in the heavyweight division except maybe Fury and making him a huge favorite against Ortiz. Uh, to me, this has all the earmarks of following that pattern that we've talked about before. When there's a knockout the first time, yeah. usually the same guy wins faster the second time. I mean, would you be surprised in the least if Deontay knocks him out in one round this time? Not, not even remotely. Yeah. No, can absolutely envisage it. Right. You know, so you see Ortiz being in there in perfect shape and really excited for it and really feeling he has a shot. And then he walks forward and bam, it's over. Exactly. Complete. Yep. Yeah. So, and and not that that's you know what my actual prediction is exactly, but yeah, uh, it's it's very much within the range of realistic outcomes here, and that's just you know how how our perception, or at least my perception of Deontay Wilder, uh, has has shifted over the last few years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the undercard, uh, and it's a solid one with three lighter weight contests each holding some intrigue or, or featuring a fighter I like. Uh, in the pay-per-view opener, Luis Neri takes on Emmanuel Rodriguez in Bantamweight action, after which undefeated junior featherweight title holder Brandon Figueroa defends against Julio Ceja. And in the co-main, Leo Santa Cruz meets Miguel Flores at 130 pounds. Anything in particular you're looking forward to there? Uh, yeah, all of them, actually. I mean, they're all ones in which the A-side should probably win. Uh, but nonetheless, they're good tests for all of those. Uh, Neri wants to put himself in the Noya Inoue stakes, uh, although that's a fight that actually probably wouldn't happen in Japan, uh, as Neri is suspended in Japan indefinitely for being quite significantly overweight for about there against uh, Shinsuke Yamanaka, I think it was. Um, Rodriguez has been on the Inoue merry-go-round, and he paid the price for that um, by being knocked out in the second round. So I think this will be a very good gauge. You would expect Neri to win this. He's a good, undefeated young Mexican fighter. Um, but this will be, I think, more of a gauge of how ready Neri is uh, possibly for the monster. Um, mm. uh, for the co-main, I really like Brandon Figueroa. Um, uh, the ladies also really like Brandon Figueroa, and the TV directors like the shots of the ladies in the crowd liking Brandon Figueroa. <laughs> right. um, I think he's a real talent. Uh, I selected him in our under-25 draft. Um, Say has a good test, although the last time we saw him, he was actually getting knocked out by Guillermo Rigondeau. Uh, so again, this is more of a, like a measuring stick kind of fight, I think. Um, and then in the co-main, obviously, Leo Santa Cruz is never boring, is he? Uh, always worth watching. Um... But Flores, again, again, I think this should be one where the A-side is favored here. Flores has some good names on his resume, guys like Alfred Tete and Ruben Tamayo. But he's gone off the boil a little bit um, lately. But it should be a win for Santa Cruz, who should have too much quality. But again, it's I, I'd watch Leo Santa Cruz fight most people, I think. Yeah, it's it's a solid undercard, but I, I think it's probably the Neri Rodriguez fight is the one that has me most intrigued, which you know means uh, you know for any of the hardcore fans who feel that way, if you're ordering the pay per view, you got to watch from the start because Neri Rodriguez uh, right. re really has some show stealing potential, and that'll those guys will be in the ring first. Yeah, indeed. Uh, there's a couple of other fights of particular note next weekend. In Liverpool, Callum Smith, super middleweight title holder and supporter of the greatest soccer club in the history of the world, <laughs> defends his 168-pound belt against John Ryder on DAZN, and later in the day, also on DAZN, Andrew Cancio defends his 130-pound title against veteran Rene Alvarado in Fantasy Springs Casino, California. One of my favorite venues, actually, Fantasy Springs. Uh, planning to watch either of those? Eh, maybe. Eh, maybe. Yeah, we'll, we'll see how the weekend unfolds. Yeah, um, 
<laughs> it is. Um, I gave uh, my quick opinion on, on Smith Ryder back when it was signed, and it's yeah. basically that Ryder looks like a no-hoper here. He lost a split decision to Rocky Fielding, and Smith knocked out Rocky Fielding in a round. And so as much as I like watching Callum Smith and I – I'm interested to be able to size him up as a possible someday Canelo opponent. It's hard to care about mm-hmm. uh, this particular fight on this side of the Atlantic Ocean, at least. Uh, maybe it's a bigger deal uh, over there. But um, I feel similarly about Cancio Alvarado. This is a rematch uh, to a fight Cancio won by eighth round stoppage a few years ago. I'm not sure there was any demand for a rematch. Um, I like Cancio. I want to watch him fight, and uh, the styles are good here. This should be entertaining, but, you know, time is limited. There's a, a four-fight pay-per-view card at the same time. I think I'll uh, read the result and decide the next morning if it's worth my time. That's the life right. of a boxing fan in 2019. <laughs> exactly. All right, we're excited to welcome to the podcast now a first-time guest. Uh, it's a little different from usual. He doesn't tick all the usual guest boxes. He's not pitching us anything he isn't trying to sell us a fight he isn't our boss uh but we figured he'd be an interesting guy uh, to bring onto the podcast he isn't only a rising boxing trainer he's also a rising boxing analyst he writes mailbag columns for boxingscene.com and has one of the more interesting and insightful boxing twitter accounts he's probably best known as the trainer of an advisor to 154 pound title holder julian j rock williams stephen redman edwards welcome to the showtime boxing podcast Hey, how you guys doing? Thanks for having me. Oh, you bet. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, uh, Stephen. I, I want to start with a question. I presume you've been asked many times before, but I don't know the answer, so let's get it out of the way. Uh, why mm-hmm. Breadman? Uh, wh- where did that nickname mm-hmm. come from? Uh, this actually has nothing to do with boxing. Uh, I play high school basketball, and there was a movie called Cornbread Early Meat about a really good basketball player. So um, I had a really, couple of really good games, and my teammates started calling me Cornbread. So then as I got older, you know, I started making some money gambling, and they kind of cut the corn off and just started calling me the uh, uh, And it kind of just stuck. So that has nothing to do with boxing. It just, you know, it just kind of stuck since I was a kid. Okay. All right. So it's it's a different kind of uh, of bread because I was I was kind of wondering, you know, is this gluten free movement uh, impacting your brand at all? But I guess not if it's, <laughs> if the bread means money. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, so uh, you train a couple of prospects, but as I mentioned at the top, the fighter you're best known for working with is J Rock Williams. And if it wasn't yeah. for Ruiz Joshua. Uh, you, he'd be the leading candidate, I think, for upset of the year with the win over Jarrett Hurd. And, and that's certainly on the shortlist still for fight of the year contenders. Um, obviously, you went in there believing that Julian could win. But did anything about the way that fight played out surprise you at all? You know what? This is go- I, hope, I hope I don't sound like I'm not being humble. But honestly, I thought that he was going to knock him out. Hmm. Yep, that's what I thought. I really thought he was going to knock him out. I really did. We had such a good camp, and he was punching so hard, and he was just so strong for the camp. You know, I thought he was going to knock Jared Hurd out because Hurd is, uh, you know, he's not the hardest guy to hit. And no. um, Julian had uh, knocked out a couple of his farm partners, and he, uh, he was just really, really, you know, in shape for the fight. So mm. I thought he was going to stop him. Mm. One of the things that really impressed me, and I think probably impressed anybody watching that fight, is that Hurd looked huge 
in there, huh? And you'd think, looking at that, that he'd have, like, a real sort of strength advantage, have the ability to impose himself on, on Julian, but that just wasn't happening. Julian just wasn't going to let that happen. Well, that was the perception of the fight, you know, and sometimes that the perception can kind of ruin people's um, outlook on the fight, and mm. so everybody just assumed that he was stronger than Julian because he was bigger and but we didn't assume that, you know. I thought that Julian was the stronger fighter because strength is not always in size. Mm. Sometimes it's about leverage and things like that. And it depends on how you carry your weight. Like with the Canelo Kovalev fight, you know, I was really convinced that Canelo Canelo is stronger than Kovalev, even though Kovalev is bigger. Mm-hmm. But sometimes the writers and the media and stuff they say a lot of things that's not exactly accurate when it comes down to boxing. So when people thought they hurt was stronger than Julian, I never corrected them. I just always mm. said, okay, fine. If that's what you guys want to believe, we'll find out when they step in the ring with each other. And when they did, I think it kind of shocked her that Julian was stronger than him. He was like, right. God damn. You know, like they lied to me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. So um, looking at what's uh, coming up next and, and uh, some news that, uh, that just came out recently, um, you know, I, I'm from Philly. Uh, you're from Philly. J-Rock is from Philly. And coming up on January 18th, his next fight will be in Philly uh, against uh, Jason yeah. Rosario. Um, yes. What does getting to bring the belt home and have this homecoming fight mean to, to you and to Julian? Um, it means a lot, you know, uh, it just means a lot. You know, we haven't always been the most, um, haven't been the, the, the guys that were like, uh, put out in front as far as like the promotion and stuff like that, as far as headlining things and having that kind of push behind us. So, uh, it means a lot, you know, a lot of our fights are on the road. We had to go down to DC and fight herd and mm. travel all over for different things. So once the herd rematch fell out, uh, it was pretty cool to get to come home and, you know, make a defense and uh, bring, you know, boxing back to city. We have to the city. We haven't had a world title fight in many years. So uh, it's something that we're really looking forward to. Right. Mm. For, for a little while there, it looked as if that next fight would actually be a rematch with her. Uh, it looked like it was going to be next month. Um, but as far as I've read, uh, it looked like that was happening, but then Heard pulled out, and we never really got a reason why. Is is that right? Was it that far advanced? And and if uh, so, do you, do you know why he changed his mind? That's correct. I can't. I don't know why he changed his mind. What happened? It was Julian fought an eliminator or Samuel Gallimore. Uh, I'm sorry, Nathaniel Gallimore last year. Right. Okay. He won the eliminator. He became the number one contender, but for whatever reason he wasn't viewed as the mandatory contender by the IBF. Okay. So what happened was we, so they told us, um, so her, you know that if you become a mandatory, you don't have to give a rematch clause. If you're a mandatory, it's like against the law. But because we were just the, um, he was just the number one contender and he wasn't the mandatory. Her asked for a rematch clause in case, um, you know, he lost the fight. So we said, fine, okay, no problem. Uh, you know, that was just kind of like part of the negotiations. Mm. So after we won the fight, he had uh, a certain amount of time to notify us and let us know that he would fight a rematch. So um, he exercised his clause, 
and we uh, we decided, and, and you know, saying that he wanted to pursue a rematch, and we were like, okay, fine. And the next thing I know, uh, we started training. We had an approximate date, and then uh, I noticed that um, you know I had started contacting um, people from uh, Vada and things like that, so we could make sure that there was testing for the fight. And uh, I just noticed that, um, like, nobody was responding, nobody was saying anything. I didn't know what was going on. And then um, next thing I know, I heard that he had pulled out. And I was like, God, man, you know, we kind of wasted a little money on training camp. And we were doing a couple of things. And, uh, you know, it was kind of disheartening because Julian wanted to prove to everybody that it wasn't a fluke and that he beat him fair and square and he wanted to do it again. But, you know, didn't work out that way. So we had to move on. And, you know, I kind of just, you know, I told him, like, uh, we, we're the champion. He's getting the opportunity to fight you again. Mm. You know, so uh, we just kind of just kept it in perspective. And uh, and that was just really it, you know, uh, as as to why it happened. I still don't know why I heard it pulled out. You know, I, I wouldn't disrespect him and try to start speculating and saying different things. That's just not fair. He's a nice kid, and uh, he's always been respectful to us. You know, I, I don't know what happened on his end, but we were notified that he wanted the rematch, and then the next thing I know, uh, from what I was told, he didn't want it anymore, and we just moved on. Huh. So by him pulling out, has he voided that rematch clause? Do you now not Yeah, it's over with now. Okay. It's so do you think that fight uh, might still happen again? or you uh, just... It could, but it would be totally on our terms. Sure. You know, mm-hmm. I thought that we won the first fight pretty convincingly and that we didn't, we shouldn't even have had to go through all of that. So I definitely, if, if, if we were to fight her again, it would be, it would be 100% on our terms. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that we won't. <laughs> but what I am saying is that it won't be a thing of, uh, you know, him dictating to us how it's going to be. You know what I mean? Right. Right. Julian did win the first fight. So, um, and he blew his opportunity. So he's going to have to uh, live with that. Makes sense. Um, let, let's yep. talk about uh, some of your tweets because you have an excellent Twitter account and I, I constantly find myself nodding along in agreement with your tweets. Um, here's one that, our listeners know how I feel about because I just went on this exact rant a couple of weeks ago. Uh, you tweeted, being the pound-for-pound pound best and being the most accomplished is not always one and the same. Inoue, Loma, Crawford, and Canelo all have real cases. Canelo best resume, but other three probably have better skill sets and could beat him if all were same size. Do you find that a lot of boxing fans just don't quite understand the criteria that, that pound for pound is supposed to be based on and they're, and they're kind of overrating you, resume. You know what? You're, you're a smart guy, man, because <laughs> I try to explain that to people and they argue and they fight with me. And, and it's just, I just can't do it anymore. And I, they just don't understand the difference. And I don't have time to like meticulously tell them what the difference is. And just because you have a better resume than the guy, like somebody will say, well, this guy fought, there's a lot of guys that fought a lot of good people. You know, that doesn't mean that you're better than him. Sometimes you fight good people because you present the most money. Sometimes you fight a lot of guys because you have, um, you're a little bit vulnerable in your style. So people look at you like, man, I can beat him. You know, it's not always about making you better. You know, and I don't want to, like, call anybody's name and say anything disrespectful to a guy. 
But like, okay, I'll show you, like Austin Trout. Austin Trout's got a lot of good guys. Mm-hmm. He really has. So he could say he has like the best resume. But that doesn't mean he has, he's the best fighter. He fought a lot of good guys because maybe the managers or the matchmakers or whoever, they saw something in him to say, you know what, he can fight, but he's not like overly dangerous like there's other guys out there. You understand what I'm saying? So right. yeah. when I see that, I always try to correct people. And I think Canelo is a talented fighter. Yeah. But because he, you know, presents the money that he presents and things like that, he can get certain fights that other guys can't. So that doesn't mean he's better. It just means that he's in a different situation to to get certain fights that other people can't get. Right. And no people don't understand that. They're like Mark Two Sharp Johnson is a great fighter. He's one of the best guys you ever gonna see in your life. And head to head, he beat a lot of history's great flyweights. Yeah. But he doesn't have like a great resume. Right. You know, he doesn't have a lot of Hall of Famers on his resume and things like that. And I just don't think people get that or understand that sometimes your resume is the opportunities that were presented to you. I mean, I don't think Canelo's a better fighter than Terrence Crawford. Right. But Terrence Crawford is with top rank. Top rank does not have welterweights. And because Crawford's not a pay-per-view star, he, will, he won't get the opportunities that, that Canelo gets. But that doesn't mean he's a better fighter. So resume is a little bit, it's not overrated, because obviously who you fight is very important. But it's just misleading sometimes if you don't understand why certain guys can get certain fights. Right, right, right. right. Well said. Yeah. I'm sticking with uh, with with your tweets. Uh, here's one that certainly won my heart, and I'm sure Eric's as well. Uh, <laughs> you wrote recently. Some idiot yesterday told me Donito is not a Hall of Famer. I blocks him. Um, <laughs> not to put too fine a point. I mean, you interact a lot with boxing fans with your mailbag and and on Twitter. Is there something about Twitter that sometimes just brings out the the I don't know how can I put this? What the hell is wrong with boxing Twitter? Let me put it that way. <laughs> you know, you know what? It's it's terrible. It's it's really it's really is like there's a few guys that I try to interact with that have positive and well thought out tweets, even if I don't agree with them. But there's like some trolls that just say some ridiculous things. <laughs> And for Nonito Denier, for what he's done in boxing, for people to, to even suggest that he's not a Hall of Famer mm-hmm. is absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. It, 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 it really is. Yeah. I'm just like, and the guy's trying to nitpick. If I don't care who you are. If you fight enough prom fighters, as far as fighting the best available guys in their proms, you're going to lose a fight. I don't care who you exactly. are. Exactly. Yep. It does not matter who you are. If you fight enough prom guys who are the best available guys, you'll lose a fight or two. Just, that's just how it is. And for, Nito, for Nonito Denier to do what he's done in boxing from 112 pounds to 126, presumably clean, in this era, for him, for people to suggest that he's not a Hall of Famer is just, it's just ignorance. I just can't even tolerate that. I can't even hear anything like that, man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. and I don't know him personally, you know, at all. I have no kind of uh, relationship with Nonito Denaire whatsoever, except admiration of his talent. That's it. Right. 
Yeah, thank thank goodness for the block button and the mute button. They come in very <laughs> oh handy God. sometimes. I probably blocked about a hundred people on Twitter. <laughs> um, one uh, one passion that you and I share is sports betting, and and you uh, alluded to it when you were explaining where the nickname came from. Um, I've seen you post some tickets uh, from Sugar House, uh, always with the penny strategically placed to cover up the bet amount. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had you had an impressive win recently at a uh, plus five twenty five odds on uh, Inoue versus Nanito to go the distance. Um, mm-hmm. Do you do you bet other sports also? And do you find like me that if you know your stuff and you're selective about the fights, boxing can be the easiest sport to win money on? Yes, I agree with you hundred percent. As far as boxing, um, I bet basketball, boxing, and football. Okay, and. Uh, I'm a lot better in boxing than I am basketball and uh, football. I think it's that you know it has to do with team sports. They're team sports, and it has a lot that has to do with you know weather and different conditions. And in basketball, you know you have to deal with if a team is playing on back-to-back nights and things like that. But with boxing, um, the odds makers are usually right as far as who's the favorite in the fight about 80% of the time. But this has been a really really weird year. And with boxing, everybody is like, you know, they uh, there's like a knee-jerk reaction all the time to uh, who's going to win the fight and who's better and things like that. Like, I'll, I'll give you an example. Julian's fight versus Hurd. Uh, Hurd deservingly should have been the favorite in the fight. You know, uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an objective person. He deserved to be the favorite. But that fight started out at 8-1. to one. There is no way in the world that Jared Hurd should be an 8-1 to favorite over Julian. Julian's right. more athletic. Julian had a better amateur career. He's faster. Uh, their punching power is pretty much even as far as I'm concerned. And, and when they got in the ring, Julian was the better puncher because he took Hurd's punches better than Hurd took his. But because Julian had a loss against J- Jamal Charlo, a guy we don't know if Hurd could beat him or not, in a fight right. that he was doing good, he got caught with a good shot. He opened as an eight to one underdog in that fight, and sometimes in boxing it's just off. And with he now in Nonito, he now is a good puncher. But Nonito Denaire's been getting hit by big guys his whole career. He was stopped one time by a guy who should have been a freaking lightweight with a <laughs> shot that he never saw, and you're giving out plus five twenty five for for the fight just to go to distance. And I'm like, man, you know, so, and, and trust me, I'm not saying I know more than the odds makers, but sometimes I just look at some odds and I'm just like, man, this is not good. This is bad. <laughs> you right. know, when uh, Jamel Herring for EO, I want some good money on that one too. I just was just like, this is all set up for Jamel Herring to do well. It's on uh, Memorial Day. He's a veteran. Uh, you know, it's a top-ranked car. The guy huh. has to come over here to America I looked at Ito, I'm like, he's solid, but he's not, you know, he's not a a freaking horror movie. You know what I mean? He's not a monster. So I'm like, that's, these odds are just too far off, you know, but, you know, man, what do I know, man? As long as I could collect collecting a little bit of money every week is all good. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, I I found that, you know, you don't want to try to bet every fight. There are a lot of fights where the odds are just uh, set in a certain way that it's going to be tough to make money. But if if you're selective and and you're just looking around for opportunities here and there, you you can find them with boxing. I'll tell you another one that was off. Usyk, the over and under being 3.5 rounds against Witherspoon. Hmm. Mm. Usyk is a guy who takes his time 
Yep. He's not what you call an offensively dynamic fighter like a Felix Trinidad or a Tommy Hearns. He takes his time. He's a well-rounded fighter. He's moving up in weight. And Witherspoon is a guy who doesn't commit and doesn't like to throw punches. So you guys are telling me that Usyk has to get him out in three rounds? And Usyk usually goes deep into fights? He even takes some time to fill a guy out. He may even lose a couple of rounds. That was just terribly off odds. Mm-hmm. Over and under that fight should have been around six or seven rounds. But instead it was three and a half. Bad odds, you know? <laughs> so when I see that kind of stuff, I jump on it. Like, man, it's just off, you know? Right. And football and, you know, basketball is obviously a little bit harder. But, you know, every once in a while you can do okay. Right. Um, you're a major advocate for more stringent drug testing and boxing. Um, do you feel... We're at least starting to head in the right direction that way, or do you feel that things are basically just as bad now as they have been since you know steroids came onto the scene and we became aware of it? Um, I really don't know because I don't have privy to all of the um, the conversations that go on, you know, um, that are over my head as far as what commissions and the testing agencies and things like that. You know, um, what I try to do is just from everything that, that that I have control of with my fighters, I just try to test as early and as much as possible. And then I just use my common sense with certain fighters. Mm-hmm. You got guys that get popped for, for whatever. And, you know, they all of a sudden have to move up and wait. So, you know, I kind of blame, I, I, I think the, the, the networks play a big part in this because the networks can kind of, require a certain amount of testing because the the networks cut the big checks. Mm. You know, obviously I think that the commissions play a part in it because six months is just not long enough in boxing for, you know, at the top level when fighters only fight twice a year anyway. And I think that the media has to play a part because the media gets to ask certain questions that to me are common sense. And I think this is a fair common sense question. How, why did you have to move up and wait after you pop dirty for a certain mm. substance? Because when you're walking around at a really, really high weight, let's say maybe 15 or 20% over your fight weight, as you come down in weight, you get weaker. Your body gets weak. You're losing muscle. You're losing minerals. You're losing different things. And I think that PEDs are so prevalent now because it allows a fighter to, let's say, a fighter that fights at middleweight to walk around at 200 pounds and still be strong throughout camp and still be able to perform at a high level because the PEDs, they make your blood flow, they let you retain the muscle, they give you energy, they do all of these different things so you can get through a hard eight-week camp, make weight, and not only make weight, but make weight strong. So, you know, that's one of the reasons why PEDs, um, in my opinion, are prevalent in this era. So, you know, I think it's common sense to ask someone, you know, ask a fighter, say, how come you can't make weight anymore? Or I got another question. You're the A side of a fight. You're the champion. You're the star. How come there's no testing for this fight when you could have got testing? So, to me, I never accuse a fighter who does not fail the test of PED use. But I do, I do look at them, you know, 
with a little bit of concern and a little bit of suspicion when you can ask for testing and you don't. Right. I'm saying to myself, why do you trust your opponent so much where you don't ask for testing? That doesn't look right to me when the guy can ask for testing and he chooses not to ask for testing. You know, so it's just certain fighters that I look at, you know, when he tests and, you know, and people uh, like when, or when they pop dirty and then I notice that their performance is dropped off, off or they move up in weight suddenly. Or you have guys who are, who are looking to be slipping like Nonito, 34, 35 years old, because clean fighters usually kind of start slipping at that time. Right. And then the next thing, they know, next thing you know, they, they get like a four or five year run where they're better than they was in their prom. That doesn't look right. That's not the way the human body works. You know, so when I look and I'm like, geez, this guy was a marginal fighter 10 years ago. And now he's in his mid thirties and he's fighting better than he's ever fought at any time in his career. And he's sustaining it. How does anybody not think that there's something wrong with that? And then the media, because you get because they give uh, a fighter gives you access to him, They just kind of just, they never ask the tough questions and it just, you know, it doesn't show a lot of integrity in my opinion, but mm-hmm. I'm only one person, you know, I just, <laughs> that's it. Yeah. I think, I think uh, it's all, it's always good to have uh, at least a, a healthy skepticism and, and be a little suspicious. There's no, there's no harm in, uh, in having suspicion when things, uh, look, when things don't look right. And it's right. not accusing anybody, of anything. I'm talking about just a fair question. Right. John Doe, was there testing in your fight for the, uh, for the championship of the world. No, we didn't do any testing except for commission testing. Well, why? Right. right. I mean, does, is, is that unreasonable? <laughs> right. right. All right. Well, well last thing, Stephen, uh, ending with uh, another one of your tweets uh, that caught my eye. You wrote of Ali's win over Foreman that you're 90% convinced this is the best win ever, uh, given that Ali was past his prime and, and Foreman was an all-time great in his prime. You're only 90% convinced, which means there's a 10% chance it's something else. Uh, what other fights are in contention for best win ever, in your view? Um, Duran over Leonard. Mm-hmm. Okay. One. Mm-hmm. Considering, you know, the circumstances, how good Leonard was, that was his prom weight. Duran wins that fight. Uh, considering the, the all-time great that Leonard was, um, Ali, I mean, Frazier over Ali, the first one. Right. That's a huge, huge win. Um, there's a couple other ones that I can't really think off the top of my head. I'm driving right, right now. But <laughs> okay. The Foreman Ali win, Ali wins over Foreman uh, is uh, is just a remarkable win if you really, really think about it. Ali has two losses on his record at the time to Norton and Frazier. They're both guys that. Foreman destroyed. Mm. Okay. Foreman's 40 and 0. He's 25 years old. Okay. Both of them are a gold medalist, but Foreman comes out of two Olympics after Ali. Foreman is so formidable and so good. They're both top 10 heavyweights of all times. But basically, what they were doing was they were fighting for the, the, the title of the greatest heavyweight to ever live. Joe Lewis is in the argument. But in 1974, there's nobody else in that argument. So that's pretty much what they're fighting for. 
Foreman is so formidable at that time. If you think about the landscape of the heavyweight division, Larry Holmes didn't kind of start coming onto the scene until the late 70s and early 80s. He won the title in 78 from Ken Norton. But if Ali does not beat Foreman, there's a chance that Foreman literally could have reigned into the 80s. Yeah, yeah. Just think about that. There's not one heavyweight of the 80s that I think could have beat Foreman. Yep. Besides maybe Holmes, and that's a 50-50 fight. Foreman didn't win the title again until 74. So you would have talked about a guy who could have conceivably reigned for 10 or 15 years uninterrupted if he doesn't lose that one fight. Yeah. If you think about that and you think about the landscape, the only guy that I think that had a chance with him during that time period was Holmes. Now, everybody will say, well, Foreman did lose to Jimmy Young. Yeah, but that was a Foreman who's damaged mentally. Exactly. If you're dealing with a guy who is undefeated and who just destroyed Ali, who destroyed Frazier, who destroyed Norton, you're talking about a different animal that you're dealing with. Larry Holmes would have never fought Ken Norton for the title. Ali literally changed the whole landscape and the history of boxing with that one win. If you really, really think about how good Foreman was and who was on the horizon, I can't see anybody that would have beat him. I love Mike Tyson, but I think Tyson's style is just bad for Foreman. Just, mm-hmm. it, it, it's just, it would be too hard to deal with him. Uh, there's no other. Michael Spinks can't beat George Foreman. You know, yeah. who could have beat George Foreman in the 80s? We would have had to wait until Lennox Lewis, Riddick Bowe, and Evander Holyfield <laughs> yeah. to come around in the late 80s and early 90s to even have a shot at beating Foreman. Yeah, man, that's true, eh? It's... Think about it. It's just, I just, I just always say, like, that, that win gets underrated, man. If you don't win that fight, you're talking about Foreman's the best heavyweight to ever live. Yeah, right. seriously. All right, hey man, look, that's great stuff, and um, we knew you'd be an interesting guest, and you proved it. And I'm real glad you joined us. Thanks so much for coming on. It's been a real pleasure. I really hope you'll come back and join us again. Um, we'd right. love to talk Whenever to you more. Whenever you guys in the want me, just give me a call, man. Thanks All a right. lot, man. Hey, awesome. thanks for joining us on the Showtime Boxing Podcast. It's been a pleasure. Yep, thank you. Thanks so much to Stephen Breadman Edwards for that. Uh, that, was, that was great. I do hope that we will indeed have him back on again soon. Um, we see this sometimes with first-time guests um, that, you know, I thought it took him 10 minutes or so to get warmed up. But once he did, that quickly became one of my favorite interviews yep. we've done. Uh, we yep. will have to teach him how to say Donaire. Uh, but otherwise, he was great. <laughs> it's Donaire. Right. That's it. Yes. You need to teach me and then and then... Together, we'll teach him. Um, To close, let's look at a few news items from around the world of boxing. And we begin with something that we've mentioned a couple of times before already, and which appears to have a few more twists and turns left in it yet. A couple of weeks ago, we reported that Julio Cesar Chavez Jr. had refused to provide a sample to a drug tester dispatched by the Nevada State Athletic Commission prior to his putative bout with Daniel Jacobs. He said he didn't want to take the test because nothing had been signed yet, uh, but Nevada suspended Chavez Jr. and ordered him to show up at a meeting on November 18th. Instead, promoter Eddie Hearn announced he was taking the fight to Phoenix, Arizona, with the contest slated for December 20th. Uh, But now, in news first reported by Kevin Ioli of Yahoo!, Nevada is crying foul, claiming that Hearn is acting contrary to Nevada law and the federal Muhammad Ali Act, which states that a boxer suspended in one state 
cannot compete in another and threatening to suspend Hearn's promotional license in the Silver State. Kieran, what is going on here and any idea how this is going to end up? I'm one big real live shrug emoji really here. <laughs> okay. I mean, so as, as much as I can figure out based on, you know, Kevin's reporting, unless Nevada can be persuaded to change its stance, this is going to end up with Daniel Jacobs fighting Gabriel Rosado, who's on the card and in the bullpen ready. Mm. I, I don't see another scenario here. I, I, the thing that confuses me is I don't see how this happened because Hearn, to his credit, said that he talked like after Nevada said, you know, made it made its initial ruling and suspended Chavez. He said he he checked with the Association of Boxing Commissions and that they said, yeah, sure, you can take it somewhere else. And obviously the Arizona Commission, knowing that Chavez was suspended by Nevada, gave it the go ahead. So I don't know how that happened. Um, but if Nevada sticks to its guns here, and and if it's right, and and it seems like it's pretty clear, if you're Eddie Hearn, are you going to risk your Nevada promoter's license in order to have put on a Julio Cesar Chavez Jr. fight? I mean, you're just not, are you? So unless I'm missing something here completely, I just don't see how we end up with Jacobs Chavez Jr. at all. Um, and I mean, there's a you may you may very well be familiar with uh, a conservative writer and analyst, one of the many folks who's left the Republican Party in recent years, a guy called Rick Wilson. Oh, yeah. Um, sure. Yeah. And he's written a book called Everything Trump Touches Dies, which is true on multiple levels, of course. And in boxing, it feels like a similar adage applies to Chavez Jr. Mm. It's like at the very least, you get yourself burned. I, I, I just continue to wonder. And maybe in this case, it's not fair, you know, maybe he was right to turn down the drug testing until he until he'd signed. Maybe he's actually doing everything right. But is he worth the trouble that he seems to bring with him all the time? Do Mexican fans even care enough about him after disappointment after another to make it worthwhile? Uh, I, I, I don't know why everyone seems to be so willing to get into bed with Chavez Jr. because it never ends up well. Right. <laughs> So I don't know. But honestly, unless I'm completely missing something, I just don't see that we're going to get Daniel Jacobs against Chavez Jr. on December 20th, I, unless I'm, I'm missing something. Yeah, uh, no, you, you raise some good points and ask some good questions for which uh, there aren't necessarily answers. Um, <laughs> and I'll just add that it's a little upsetting that the people around Jacobs are so gung-ho to go ahead with this fight no matter what. You know, if mm. if PEDs make a dangerous sport more dangerous, uh, yeah. as we are often told uh, by a lot of people who, who would like to see more stringent drug testing and P PED use uh, eliminated from the sport as best we can, you can't really believe that and then also throw your boxer in with another guy who's extremely suspect. And again, we, you know, I'm don't want to say that Julio Cesar Chavez Jr. is using PEDs. I don't know that, but he right. did duck a drug test and he does have a bit of a history. And, um, you know, th there are other opponents you can fight. I realize that there's a certain cachet to the name yeah. Julio Cesar Chavez Jr., but uh, it, uh, sort of like you were just saying, I, I just don't see why it's worth it, especially when you add on the additional danger of, you know, what if this guy is yeah. using substances he shouldn't be? Um, I guess this is Jacob's people saying, don't worry, Chavez sucks. We'll beat him even if he's cheating. Um, but I'm not exactly thrilled about that attitude if I'm Daniel Jacobs. Um, mm. So I don't know. It's very complicated, but uh, I, I just something something about them pushing to go through with this fight is, is rubbing me the wrong way. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. 
Yeah. Uh, and it's just, yeah, it's just the guy's constantly getting all these breaks, Travis Jr. And I just, I don't know. I don't get it. So, well, we'll see. I think we'll be back. We'll, we'll be talking about this. <laughs> yes, this is probably not the final chapter. We're not chapter. done. Right. We're not done. Uh, to close out, uh, a couple of additions to the Showtime schedule were announced uh, this week. On the already scheduled December 7th Showtime Championship Boxing Card in Brooklyn, headlined by Jamal Charlo against Dennis Hogan, uh, the Philippines' Marlon Tapales faces Japan's Ryosuke Iwasa for a super bantamweight belt. And... The Clarissa Shields-Ivana Habazin clash, the non-happening of which and controversy surrounding which we have covered extensively of late, has been rescheduled for January 10th at the Ocean Casino Resort in Atlantic City. Uh, This is the third time this fight has been scheduled. It was first slated to happen on August 17th, but was postponed after Shields injured her knee in training. Then it was rescheduled for October 5th. And we all know what happened then. Yep. Uh, So... Is this third time lucky, you think? <laughs> well, you know, I, I try to make predictions on a lot of things, but predicting <laughs> luck, that's uh, that's something I try not to do. Uh, I would hope so. Um, I'm glad it's coming to Atlantic City, uh, both. I am. Uh, because, you know, first off, I think trying for Flint again, you know, there, there's a stain yep. there for this particular fight. Uh, I say let Clarissa do a homecoming there against someone else after some time has passed. Um, but also because Atlantic City is easy for me to get to, perhaps this is a good excuse to get out to a fight early next year. Maybe we'll even get the old Clarissa Shields Atlantic City weigh-in live stream game back go. together for this one. There you go. All right, that will do it for this week's edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Uh, we will be back next week to review the big Deontay Wilder, Luis Ortiz rematch, and to look ahead to upcoming boxing action. Until then, thanks for listening.